Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we begin a brand new series called John 3.16. So let's turn in our Bibles to John 3.16 as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, God So Loved. that in order to read the Bible rightly, you've got to slow down. Yeah, of course, there, there are times when you should be reading great hunks of Scripture. You know, I'm a big believer in reading the Bible through annually. I think it's important because, you know, failure to do that sometimes leads to error. Sometimes people reading their Bible lose track of the forest for the trees. And when we forget the one story, the whole, the macro, well, we lose a sense of what the individual passages are all about as well. And for that reason, in the past, I have given myself to try to explain the whole, everything from Genesis to Revelation, how the whole story runs from front to back. Yeah, there are reasons that we might want to read the Bible more quickly. But reading it slowly will reveal treasures you're going to have missed. Imagine, if you will, you travel a, you know, a stretch of roadway over and over again. I mean, perhaps it's your daily commute, the road, you know, to visit your family or something like that. After a while, you really do know that road, or do you? What if you've never stopped your car anywhere along that road and looked around? I mean, you wouldn't have seen that badger's hole or the the colors in that rock formation or even, you know, little bits of pieces that, you know, come from, you know, a culture so many years before you ever showed up on that road. If you never got out and looked carefully at parts of the road, did you ever know that road at all? And the Bible's like that. Yes, of course, each individual passage is a part of the wider whole. But sometimes when we don't stop and think about what one small passage says, when we don't stop and investigate, we're going to miss the loveliness and the beauty and the meaning and the reasons for faith and the reasons for worship. And such a passage is John 3.16. Our problem with John 3.16 and seeing the loveliness of that passage is sometimes because of overfamiliarity. I'm quite sure John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible. I would also imagine that the majority of my listeners have committed that one sentence to memory. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And as lovely as those words sounds, is there really enough there that might cause us to study it for one entire week? Well, hang in there. Because I hope to show you that one sentence in Scripture has more in it than you've perhaps ever considered. And I hope, therefore, to fill you with a sense of wonder. What is it about God that I've never understood from John 3.16? So let's start. I mean here to start with no more than the first four words, for God so loved. You know, those words remarkable, or do we simply take them for granted? I mean, God loves. I mean, after all, as one critic put it, of course God loves. Isn't that his job? But it's not at all obvious that God should be love. If all one did was observe the the nature of the creation, one might easily come to very different conclusions. I mean, on the one hand, we as human beings see the creation that God has made and that it nourishes and sustains us. I mean, it provides us the air we breathe, the food we consume, the, the raw materials of this earth that can be used to better our lives in countless ways. But on the other hand, we can also see that nature kills. Earthquakes, storms, droughts, even the smallest virus, which can and does cause endless suffering. You know, perhaps without the aid of divine revelation, simply looking at the creation, it's possible to come to the conclusion that perhaps God does not love. I mean, after all, so many things do cause suffering. 
And furthermore, if one looks around at the religions of the world, it's not at all clear that God is love. And what I mean is that apart from the revelation that is found in the Bible, there are no statements in other religions that identify God as a God of love. I know for many people that's shocking. That's because in popular thinking, people say every religion teaches that God is love. It's not true. They don't. But the Bible is unique. 1 John 4 verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That is, love is an essential attribute of God. Let's stop for a moment and backtrack. When the Bible says that God is love, perhaps we're wise to ask ourselves what is meant by love. And I know that in the world, there are many definitions of love. You know, when someone says, oh, I I just love that painting or that piece of music or, or even that car, they mean they find joy in the object that pleases them. They, they use the word love almost as a synonym for enjoyment. But that can't be what's meant in 1 John 4 verse 8. Or for that matter, in John 3 16. I mean, those passages don't say God finds enjoyment in things, although he does. But 1 John tells us that on the basis of God being love, we are called to love. And the implication is we are called to love others. And so I think we can say that however we define love, that love is self-giving or the giving of ourselves for no other reason than for the benefit of another. And that, I think, is a good definition of love, giving ourselves for no other reason than to bring benefit to someone else. Ah, still doesn't get at 1 John 4 verse 8, and that's because that passage doesn't say that God loves. Rather, it says God is love. That is, love is more than what God does. Of course, in John 3.16, love is something that God does. But in 1 John 4 verse 8, love is something that God is. It's an essential attribute of his nature. It's foundational to his being. Stop and think about that. If love is an action that one has for another, then how can God in his essential being be love? I mean, after all, if we're really talking about God and not merely the product of our own imagination, but the real God, the one eternal God, the one that we are not. That is, God is the one being who eternally exists before anything else has existed. That is, before anything came into being in eternity past, God is love. He is love because love is essential to his being. He has always been love and will always be love. But let's go back to the time before creation existed. How can God be love back then when there was no one for whom God could express love? To say that God is love is that God, because he is love, always acts in love. But who is he acting for? And here the Bible helps us. Listen to Jesus' prayer. And it's in John 17, verse 24. He prays to the Father and says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So there's a statement. Jesus says to the Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Well, now, the natural question that we need to ask is to ask, how long before the foundation of the world did the Father love the Son? And here John helps us, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, that is, the Son, just like the Father, has eternally existed. And of course, that is the language of the Trinity. 
There is but one God, and this one God has eternally existed in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, C.S. Lewis, the great Cambridge scholar, in his very famous book, Mere Christianity, I think said it very well. Let me quote him here. He says, all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words, God is love, have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. Now, it's that, that God is not a single person, but that there is but one God who eternally exists as three persons. It is that statement that allows for the statement, God is love. And that also tells you why no other religion can say or does say that God is love, but the religion of the triune God. Now, C.S. Lewis is still not done, so let's keep listening to what he says on this matter. He says, of course, what these people mean when they say God is love is often something quite different. They really mean love is God. They really mean that our feelings of love, however and wherever they arise, and whatever results they produce, are to be treated with great respect. Perhaps they are, but that is something quite different from what Christians mean by the statement, God is love. They believe that the living dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else, end quote. So let me say that again. The activity of love in God has been going on eternally. God has always been love. God's love has always been a giving love in which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have loved, have given of themselves to the other, and this has been going on eternally. So let me state it another way. It would seem then that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have eternally brought joy and happiness to the other persons in the Godhead. Let me state it again. For all eternity, the Father has brought delight to the Son and to the Spirit, and the Son has brought delight to the Father and to the Spirit, and the Spirit has brought delight to the Father and to the Son. And so when we come to this amazing statement, God is love, we wonder how the loving God would express himself in creation. Would not the creation reflect the joy and the delight that the members of the Trinity find in each other? We live in a fallen world. We're called to live God-honoring, Bible-based lives, but society would seem opposed. How are we to illuminate and influence a culture that rejects the truths of Scripture? Well, Back to the Bible Canada has a new resource to help us do just that. 10 Christian Essentials for Cultural Change. It's a new booklet that presents 10 impactful ways we can affect and influence the world around us. Each chapter also contains probing questions to reflect upon and suggestions as to how each of us might integrate these essentials into our daily lives and relationships. Derived from Dr. John Newfeld's audio series and alternative lifestyle, this is a resource designed to engage the reader to make a difference. Request your free copy today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Now, if God gives love and receives love 
through all eternity. Well, we've got to conclude then that God has no needs. Indeed, He doesn't. He doesn't create the world as some people have assumed because He was lonely or in need of fellowship. You know, the love of God within the Trinity was so great that God needed nothing outside of Himself. And Paul taught that principle. He was in the city of Athens, and Athens was at that point in time the center of philosophical thinking. It was also a city full of idols. And among the idols of the city, Paul finds one that stands out, most curious statue. It simply says, the statue to the unknown God. That is, the thinkers of Athens thought, yeah, we have plenty of gods, but there must be a God out there we know nothing of. And the thing about the gods is that they were fickle and they were also needy. And so that made a very interesting relationship between humans and the gods, because you had to meet the gods' needs. And seeing this statue to an unknown God, well, that gives Paul the opportunity to speak to the Athenians about the God they truly knew nothing about. Acts 17, 24 to 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. God's not served by human hands. There's no human being that has ever done something that God needed. God, therefore, doesn't create the world or human beings to meet an unmet need in himself. God's not needy. And that in itself is very interesting. We all know that for some, the definition of love is attached to the idea of being needy. But whenever we see needy people reaching out in love, we know it's not love they want. Rather, it's the needy person wants to use the other person to gain something they most desperately need. That's utilitarian. That's not love. God is not needy. I think we need to linger on that thought for a while. Some of us worry that if God doesn't actually need me, how can he still love me? But you think about that. The person who says that is often the person who says, in order to be loved, I need to be needed. But what if God's not like that at all? And he's not. God does not need to love us. But if he doesn't need us in any way, why would he both make the physical creation and why would he make us? What motivated him? And the reason so many of us find this thought to be strange is because everything that we've ever done has been motivated by need. So we get a career, we get a job, we go to work every day because we need the money and we need to sustain ourselves. We need not to starve to death or end up begging on the streets. So we form friendships and we get married because we don't want to be alone. We need fellowship. God doesn't need. He didn't create the world because he was bored. God didn't need anything to do. What he did in showing love within the Trinity was full and abundant, no unmet needs. Again, so why would God create? Well, over and over again, the Bible does say that he created for his glory. That is, the joy that God had within the Trinity was so abundant, so rich, that God created to express his joy, his fullness, his richness, his love. And that, by the way, is the highest purpose any human being can find. It's to be invited into the perfect, joyous love of God. So then creation is not God acting to meet an unmet need in himself, but rather 
The God who has no needs acts out of his fullness and expresses the joy he has in being God by creating the universe. I mean, think about it in terms we understand. I mean, think of a couple that's so in love with each other, they're looking for external ways to express their happiness. That's the explanation of the universe. So let's move on from that to our experience of the love of God. John 3.16 begins with the words, God so loved. And there are numerous places in the Bible in which we are told of God's great love for human beings. Isaiah 62 verse 5, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Or Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. See, the Lord delights in showing love to his people, and we his people, we should find joy as God delights in us, for we delight in him. See, one of the wonderful things about the love of God is that it never varies. When we think of love, that is, as we experience it as human beings, we experience love as something that waxes and wanes. You know, it's more intense at some times than others. God's love, on the other hand, is constant, and that's why in several places, when speaking of the love of God, you know, the Bible uses the word steadfast. And so, for instance, Psalm 52, verse 8, David says, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. That is to say, David is confident there will never be less or more of the love of God. It will be steadfast. It will be the same. You know, for that reason, none of us should ever wonder whether God would stop loving us. If love is essential to God, love is also steadfast or unwavering or constant. Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from what? The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, but if God's love wavered, if it were not constant, if it sometimes faltered and then, you know, regained its footing, well, it wouldn't have been possible then for the Apostle Paul to say that nothing can separate us from the love of God. See, what if in a given moment, you know, like a power outage in a storm, the love of God was not there? And I mention that because every once in a while, I'll hear someone saying, how can God love me? I mean, they usually mean that, you know, they've sinned in some grievous way or they've gone through some very difficult experiences and they now feel abandoned. But in those cases, we've mistaken our transitory feelings for the steadfast love of God. Look at the contrast in Psalm 103, 15 to 17. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. See, from everlasting to everlasting, constant love, unwavering, never subject to change. And that's true even in the worst things that can befall us. I end with an illustration from the book of Lamentations. And if you don't know what that book is about, let me explain. Lamentations is, as the name suggests, it's a book of lament, of bitter weeping. And the reason for the weeping is that Jerusalem has been destroyed. And the inhabitants of the city have been defeated, and the temple has been burned to the ground. But there's a reason for this tragedy, and that forms the central theme of the book. 
For years, God has been sending the prophets to his people, and he's telling them to repent of their sins. The city has been full of idolatry, and injustice is everywhere. But no matter the warnings, the people simply refuse to repent. God won't punish us, they say. I mean, after all, this city has the temple of God. God would never let his temple be destroyed. And then everything the prophets had warned about comes to pass. The Babylonians surround the city, they break down the walls, they burn the temple, and they murder many in the city. The ones that remain are horribly suffering. In a case like that, you might argue, how can there be any more love of God? Isn't God simply angry with us beyond all measure? And there are parts in Lamentations that would lead one to believe maybe, maybe, maybe there's no love left in God. But that's wrong. Jeremiah, who's the author of Lamentations, says, my soul constantly remembers my affliction, my suffering. Now to Lamentations 3, 20 to 23. My soul continually remembers it, and it is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness faithfulness of God teaches us God's always the same. And even though, says Jeremiah, we have been made to suffer, we have reason to believe that we must never be in despair. The steadfast love of God never runs out. Not like an empty gas tank or a depleted battery, God is never short on love. John 3.16 says, for God so loved. And we respond in saying, that's a very impressive statement. Do you believe that? For if you do, you'll know that you've not been forsaken. How can you be forsaken by the God who by his very being is love? Thanks so much, John. This is going to be a great series. Let me ask you a question because I found it intriguing when you talked about the God of love and that the God of love is really reserved for the God of the Bible. (laughs) Yes, You know, how surprising it is for many people to say, you know, doesn't everyone teach that God is love? As a matter of fact, only the Christian faith teaches that God is love. Um, And, uh, you know, I mean, but, you know, we are created to receive love. And um, to know that our God loves, my goodness. I mean, uh, who, who presents that kind of news? And what is that news? Well, that's very good news. God so loved the world. Nobody else says that. Let's proclaim it as loudly and as proudly as we can. Our God is love who comes to love the lost. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, John 3.16, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We're coming to the end of your opportunity to register for the Back to the Bible Canada 2023 Israel Experience from April 16th to the 24th. The time is drawing close and we're nearing capacity. So if you've been thinking about joining us for the Israel Experience 2023 with Bible teacher, Dr. John Neufeld, Lathagain's Phil Calloway, special musical guest, Amanda Stott, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, now's the time. We're also offering an optional Jordan extension, April 24th to the 29th. So seize the day and join us in the Holy Land. Numbers are limited, so register soon. 
Please note that all costs associated with this event are paid for by the participants. No ministry funds are used. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.